Welcome to Todd's World, the fusion of fiction and podcast. Thanks for joining us for original audio fiction stories. I'm Todd Allen. Today we have Insurrection, Season 2, Episode 3, A Nation Divided Against Itself. Insurrection is a fictional history of America in our time, where the deep state has finally killed President Trump, only to rouse an even larger enemy, Group Alamo, the world's largest secret paramilitary force. Group Alamo finally fights back against the deep state, and there are no rules in war. New episodes drop every Monday, and the companion podcast where Will and Carrie join me to delve into that week's episode drops on Wednesdays. And our listeners enjoy the companion show almost as much as the story. In season one, we were introduced to Sandy Baxter, a young reporter in the D.C. area, and her source for inside information, Alexandria Police Department Detective Rob Bannis. We checked back in with Sandy in this week's episode, along with Jake Gunn, the podcaster-turned-group Alamo propagandist. If you haven't listened to season one of Insurrection, you really should go back and listen. It's so good. All the episodes and companion podcasts are available right now on Apple, Spotify, Supercast, or wherever you get podcasts. In fact, we've opened up the entire first season of Insurrection to everyone to encourage you to listen to Insurrection and tell your friends and family about it. We hope you'll love listening to the episodes and podcasts so much that you'll subscribe and help us support this show. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Todd's World 2023, also on Truth Social at The Todd Allen Show. I post short clips of the latest episodes and podcasts that you can repost or send to your family and friends. Also, check out our website, toddsworld.net, with all the cool insurrection and witness merchandise. There's even some Trump 2024 merchandise on there just for fun. All original designs. Check them out. I think you'll like them. Our other story that we do, we alternate seasons, is Witness, which is a fictional series about the end times. And the paperback for Witness is out. I'm so excited about it. Uh, I, I just got my copies in. So anyway, check them out on Amazon. They're only available on Amazon. So if you have people out there, friends, family, that would prefer to read rather than listen, which I guess is fine. You know what? Maybe if they read the season one of insurrection paperback or the season one of witness paperback, they'll get someone to the show that they'll listen and subscribe and want to get it early. Also, by the way, click on the link and subscribe to the show if you haven't, but order your copy of witness on Amazon today. Thank you so much to everyone who subscribes and supports this show. Hopefully this introduction is short enough that will doesn't go full Diane Feinstein comatose on us. As always, this is a work of fiction. All names, characters, businesses, places, and events, even those based on real people or events, are entirely fictional. The sole product of the author's brilliant and engaging imagination. Any resemblance to actual persons living or dead is purely coincidental and fictional. And of course, we never encourage or promote violence. Unless your government, of the people, by the people, and for the people, descends into full-blown tyranny.
now for the third episode of the second season of Insurrection. Season 2, Episode 3, A Nation Divided Against Itself. Sandy Baxter had been up late going over everything she had managed to gather so far on the attacks four days earlier. The media had labeled them domestic terrorist attacks. And perhaps they were. But if so, they were the most brazen, coordinated attacks since 9-11 assuming you bought the standard government line about Saudis and Al-Qaeda. Sandy had her doubts about that history, for good reason. She was only 28, barely a spring chicken in the journalism world, but she had seen enough to understand the government lies as a matter of course. The press is supposed to play for the other team, the truth team, but by and large the mainstream media had thrown in their lot with the bureaucratic state. So the media now lied as much as the government. With the fawning assistance of almost all of big tech, the government and the media spun their webs of deception, and far too much of the public trundled unquestioningly along, eating the official lies up like candy. Sandy had started working the phones the next morning after Alexandria Police Department Detective Rob Bannis had given her the tip but she was stonewalled by every department. No one had any idea to what she was referring when she asked if there had been copies of the Declaration of Independence found taped on the doors or houses of any of the federal prosecutors or judges who had been abducted. Some had actually laughed at her and asked again what news outlet she was with. Because it sounds like the National Enquirer, one woman in particular had said, cracking herself up in the process. So Sandy had switched tactics. She hadn't been in the game long enough to have a huge network of friends and acquaintances in the news business, but she had some, and she started making calls. She was working on a story about the recent domestic terror attacks and wondered if her contacts knew anyone in local or state law enforcement who might have actually been on one of the crime scenes. She was looking for some quotes from cops on the ground, a more raw reaction by police as opposed to the tightly controlled statements put out by the FBI. That didn't get her much farther, until she talked to Lane Bell. The number she had been given for Lane was his personal cell number, and she caught him on his way to the bar that evening after a long day staking out a suspect in a double homicide. He'd answered on the second ring, Sandy made the connection with the reporter who'd given her Lane's number, and that seemed to put him at ease. He mentioned he'd worked with the reporter many times and trusted him. Sandy went through her whole song and dance about wanting a gut reaction from the cops on the scene first, and Lane gave her some boilerplate cop answers. It seemed there wasn't much to tell from Lane's perspective. 
Sandy danced around the subject a couple times and decided to go for it. Did you notice anything out of the ordinary taped to the house or the door when you were there? She asked. Lane fell silent on the other end, and Sandy let the silence play out, waiting for him. Her dad had spent most of his life in sales, and he had taught Sandy from an early age some of the tricks of the trade. Ask for the contractor's sale, she remembered him telling her one evening at dinner after he had landed a large account he had been working on for months. Then wait for the client to answer. Whatever you do, don't speak. Let the silence hang. If you talk before the client answers, you lose, period. Sandy had found the lesson applied in journalism, too. So she waited for Lane to speak. Finally, he did, and her dad was proven right. Tell you what, I'm going out for a couple beers before I head home. How about we meet for a drink at the Steel Cat on Jefferson in Rose Hill? You know where that is? he asked. Sandy was so shocked she almost forgot to answer. Uh, Sorry, she said after a moment. I'm Googling it now. She waited a second for Google, and Lane started naming other nearby landmarks. I've got it, she said. I'm a half hour away, so give me 45 minutes. No worries, Lane said. I'm sure Lonnie has plenty of beer to keep me company. See you soon. Uh, what was your name again? Sandy, she answered. That's right, Sandy. Okay, see you soon, Sandy. And with that, Lane ended the call. Sandy changed into a bar and cop appropriate outfit which meant something tight and lower cut. Lower, not low. Show off enough to keep him just slightly off his game, but still come off like a respected journalist. It was a tightrope to walk, but Sandy had been walking it for years. She touched up her makeup, grabbed her phone, purse, and notebook, along with her laptop, and took off. Thirty-five minutes later, she walked into the Steel Cap bar and surveyed the patrons. She had no idea what Lane Bell looked like. But after a few seconds, a large, dark-skinned man yelled, Sandy? and waved. She waved back and headed for the man sitting at the bar. The man was smiling, and Sandy smiled back and shook his hand while they introduced themselves. What do you want to drink? Lane asked her. Beer's good with me. How about a Coors Light? she asked the bearded man behind the bar. Five minutes later, they were settled into a booth away from the busy bar. Thanks for the beer, Sandy said. Thanks for meeting me, the man replied. Lane Bell stood almost six feet tall. Sandy guessed him for mid to late forties. He had a big smile and he was charming in a dorky cop kind of way. He was handsome for his age, even if he wasn't Sandy's type. What Sandy liked instantly about him were his eyes. They were big and hazel, and kindness still shone out from them. Knowing what the job does to most cops, Sandy was impressed. So, you're working on a story about the kidnappings, Lane said. You know, the feds took those investigations over almost before they started. Sandy nodded, but she didn't speak. Her dad was talking in her head. Always let the client talk. And she did. She would ask questions as he went, but she wanted him to get on a roll with the story first. 
Lane leaned back in the booth and got comfortable. Good. Let him get comfortable, Sandy's dad spoke in her mind. We got the call about 7 a.m. that morning, Lane said. The judge's husband didn't realize she was missing until he got up that morning. He had gone to bed without her. Usually she came to bed eventually. But sometimes, if she was burning the midnight oil, she would curl up on the couch in her office and end up waking up there the next morning. He assumed that's what had happened until he went looking for her the next morning and couldn't find her. He tried her cell a few times, and then he got worried when he found her phone on her desk in the office. It was at that point he called 911. Didn't she have a security team of some sort? Federal marshals assigned her? Sandy asked. We found them curled up in their vehicle, still knocked out from whatever the kidnappers drugged them with. They weren't hurt, but they had no memory at all of what had happened the night before. So whoever pulled off this mass abduction, they were professionals. Better than your average U.S. Marshal, and that's saying something. That was our first clue we weren't dealing with your typical kidnapper. There was no ransom note left which is generally the whole point of a kidnapping. We called for a forensic team, but the feds took over before we could do much of anything. I'm guessing they found Diddley's squad anyway. There was nothing obvious out of place, no signs of any struggle. It was like she vanished. Sandy's eyes had drifted down to her beer while she was listening. Lane's story sounded an awful lot like Rob Bannis's story. Lane paused to take a drink and Sandy took a drink of her Coors Light. But you did find something out of the ordinary, Sandy said. Lane Bell looked at her closely. Which is why you called, and why you're sitting here right now having a beer with this old codger. Sandy smiled and shrugged. I know, I know, I look amazing for my age, Lane said, laughing. Why do I get the feeling you already know what we found? A copy of the Declaration of Independence, Sandy offered. Looks like we have a winner, Lane replied. It was taped to the side door on the garage, kind of out of the way. We didn't see it right away. How did you find out about it? The feds never mentioned it in any of their briefings. A good friend is a detective with a local PD in Alexandria. He was the first on the scene to one of the judges. He took a picture of the declaration taped to the door. When the FBI never mentioned it, he made a few calls, and then he talked to me. He's always been big on transparency, and he wondered why the feds might lie about something like that, Sandy said. Lane Bell nodded and sipped his beer. Why, indeed. It's too easy to say because their lips were moving. Right. They lie as a habit. Sandy took another drink, lost in thought for a minute until Lane interrupted her. Do you have any theories yet? He asked. Sandy startled back to the present. Theories? About what? The Declaration of Independence. Oh, she was back now, fully engaged again. No, unfortunately I don't have any theories. Just trying to chase down the facts right now. I want to know if they were left at every scene or just a few. How many have you confirmed so far? Lane asked. Just two, yours and Rob's, Sandy answered. I keep getting stonewalled everywhere. 
Lane tipped up his beer and drank the last of it in one long swallow. Then he leaned forward, over the table, closer to Sandy. His eyes narrowed. And what does that tell you, Sandy? Sandy sighed. That this whole thing is a lot bigger and wider and deeper than anyone in the federal government is letting on? Lane nodded and leaned back again. Welcome to Washington, D.C. I've been in D.C. a long time, she said. Not this Washington, Lane said. This Washington is a whole different animal. Then Lane leaned in again and lowered his voice. Listen, Sandy, you want to be careful poking around in these woods. There are wolves and worse lurking in the shadows. His eyes were deadly serious. You keep my number and call me if you need any help, especially if you get yourself into a jam. Then his face softened and he smiled again, and Sandy smiled back at him, but the unease remained. Rob had warned her, and now Lane Bell had warned her. Be careful. There be dragons. Sandy had still been uneasy when she finally fell asleep that night on the couch and dreamt of dark woods and wolves and paper copies of the Declaration rustling across the ground in a cold wind. Her phone had died soon after midnight, and she slept longer than normal. She slept hard that night while death rained down from the sky all across the country. By the time she woke up at 8.30 the next morning, plugged her phone in and turned it on, most of the world already knew what she was about to discover. She noticed two voicemails from Rob first and thought that was strange. Then she listened to his messages, and all the color drained out of her face. She couldn't comprehend what she just heard. She turned on the TV and when she saw the piles of smoking rubble and debris and the fires still burning in Washington, D.C., understanding finally dawned. Tears filled her eyes, still puffy with sleep, and Sandy Baxter remembered her dreams from the night before. She noticed the time and realized she needed to get moving. The federal government swung into action within an hour of the first missile falling out of the sky. The response was slowed by the death of the Director of Homeland Security, who was killed along with his family when a cruise missile struck his home in rural suburban Virginia. The Deputy Director had already been killed when his home exploded less than a week earlier, but his family had been out of town at the time and their lives had been spared. They closed all the airspace over the continental United States for starters. All flights were grounded until further notice. This created mass pandemonium at the nation's airports, with travelers stranded and hotels unable to handle the influx of requests for rooms. Less than 20% of the stranded air travelers were able to find a room. The rest were stuck in the terminals where there were far more people than seats and weary travelers sat propped against bare walls or paced between long lines of stranded flyers who only wanted to get home. All non-essential businesses were closed by order of the president. Those citizens not already at home were asked to make their way home and to shelter in place once they got home. Grocery stores and gas stations would remain open, with patrons served at intervals according to the first letter of their last names, 
but this turned out to be a logistical nightmare nearly unmanageable from the store's perspective. Stores made their own attempts at compliance. The national chains were the strictest. But despite attempts to comply, by mid-afternoon the following day, life for most people and businesses had descended into barely controlled chaos. If the nation's experience with COVID should have made for a smoother operation, it worked almost the opposite. Whatever goodwill and national outrage the cruise missile attacks might have generated dissipated almost as soon as the nationwide lockdowns were announced. Most states hadn't been hit at all in the attacks, especially the red states in the heartland. And the mostly conservative citizens of those states immediately rebelled against the new president's proclamation. This put the governors of the red states in the impossible position of choosing between supporting and defending national security and managing a statewide rebellion. County sheriffs across the Fruited Plains began releasing statements that their officers would not enforce the president's lockdowns and their counties would remain open for business. All schools, colleges, and universities were closed by order of the president, and the superintendents complied at first. No one wanted to provide an easy target full of hundreds of school children for whatever enemies of America had masterminded the attacks. But as more and more information filtered out about the actual targets that had been hit, the country began putting the pieces together, and more and more parents and officials throughout most of the country realized their communities were far away from any installations of the federal government which might be targeted. It would take a week or so to fully show itself, but the divide between red states and blue states only deepened in response to the attacks. In the deep blue states of California and New York and Illinois, the governors called up the National Guard to patrol the streets and instituted strict curfews for anyone outside on the streets after dark. All non-essential businesses were shuttered, and the public schools immediately reverted to remote learning for at least two weeks. The governor of Texas resisted the requests of the White House to mobilize the National Guard, except for the purpose of increasing patrols along the U.S.-Mexican border. No curfews were instituted, and all businesses remained open. Schools were closed for the remainder of the first week, but were open again the next week. Florida's governor responded in much the same way, and in a press conference the day after the attacks, the governor reiterated his call for those who love freedom to relocate south to the Sunshine State. The national news media complex reacted with horror and revulsion to the red state's response. The New York Times building was severely damaged by multiple cruise missiles, and in the minds of journalists, this was tantamount to an attack on the White House. They were shell-shocked, and when the Americans in flyover country didn't respond in kind, the media lashed out in shock and anger and rage. They accused the red states of fomenting violence against the government, of aiding and abetting, when in reality all the red states were doing was going about their normal lives. They hadn't been attacked. Perhaps there was a day when an attack on one was an attack on all. But as became rapidly clear in the wake of the cruise missile attacks on the federal government, 
those days were long past. The government also tried the novel trick of shutting down the internet across the country, or slowing the speeds to the point it might as well have been shut down. That lasted for almost four hours, until the resulting hue and cry by the entire country caused the government to backpedal quickly and resort to heavily censoring content instead. Every military base in the country went to DEFCON 1, with plans to activate all reserve personnel. Both AWACS and fighter jets were immediately scrambled over the skies of America, but the threat had apparently passed. No more missiles were launched or sighted, and as the hours passed and the dust settled, most of the country breathed a sigh of relief, and the thoughts of the country turned to cause and cleanup. By the time the newly installed president, Maria Cortez, held a press conference later that afternoon to address the attacks, nearly all of the measures she had ordered to contain the American public were failing. And like the cagey politician she was, she immediately attempted to change the conversation. Brad Weathers was back in the bunker with the original group from the night of Trump's assassination when the president took the podium. The encrypted message had been waiting for him as soon as he woke up. All government offices were closed until further notice, and since they had no idea who was responsible for the attacks, or if more missiles would be incoming, the bunker was the easy choice. Not only were they protected, but they had all of the computer and communication equipment that they needed to keep an eye on things from inside. Early on, the discussion turned to Beth Graves, the man from NSA who had initially told them to make Beth disappear. Brad had learned his name was Carl, though he still didn't know his last name, asked for an update from the FBI on the hunt for Beth. The tall man in his 60s who was the liaison to the FBI just shook his head. Still on the run, he said. His name was Russ Harvey. We believe she rendezvoused with Grayson Wills, a former Special Forces operative who spent a lot of years in private contracting over in the sandbox after he retired. He lived with Beth and her mom for four or five years when she was in high school. We've searched both her apartment and his cabin, but we didn't turn up anything of any value in helping us with the chase. Carl sighed and shook his head. How hard can it be to track down a 25-year-old girl? I believe it's probably the 56-year-old Special Forces stepdad that presents the problem, Russ answered. And how much will this latest shit show impact our continuing search? Carl asked. It will probably have a significant impact, Russ replied. We'll find out in just a few minutes, but I would expect the president will want every available body on the hunt for the missile launchers. Carl took off his glasses and rubbed his balding head. When was the last time we had a ping on her location? In Alabama, at her apartment. She made her last phone call to Grayson Wills. Then her phone dropped off the grid. She obviously packed in a hurry, made a large ATM withdrawal, got gas in Vincent, then she dropped off the map. We found her car parked at Grayson Wills' cabin. We assume they left together in Mr. Wills' vehicle, and they haven't been seen or heard from since. 
Russ rubbed his eyes beneath his glasses and shrugged his shoulders, having told all there was to tell. Carl threw his pen against the wall, doing nothing in the way of damage. It seemed to be the fiercest reaction he could conjure up. God damn it! So the only eyewitness to the biggest crime in the history of our country, a 25-year-old bartender, is on the run, footloose and fancy-free, and now we have to pull all our men looking for her out in the field to go chase ghosts looking for cruise missile launchers. Russ nodded and lowered his eyes. Yes, sir. I'd say you summarized the situation succinctly. Carl stood up and walked around the bunker rubbing his forehead. He felt a migraine coming on. Since the government of the United States of America can't seem to round up a young girl and her ex-military stepdad, is it fair to assume no one has the first goddamn clue who in the hell lobbed 200 cruise missiles at us from our own backyard? Someone affiliated with the military, though Brad didn't know what branch or rank took the lead on the question. No one that I'm aware of in any branch of the military or national intelligence has any idea who launched the missiles, how many missiles were launched, or where they were launched from. There was no chatter on any channels about an attack involving cruise missiles. Possible tie-ins to the domestic terrorist attacks last week? Another man asked from the opposite side of the room. Brad thought he was with the CIA. Brad chimed in with his opinion. It's hard to imagine how they couldn't be connected. It'd be one hell of a coincidence if they weren't. What's the connection? Carl asked. I don't see a connection, Russ interjected. Brad scanned the room for any more opinions, but apparently Russ had spoken for most. This time, Brad rose from his chair and started pacing trying to put it together for himself. In the first attack, the homes of the deputy director of the FBI and the assistant director of Homeland Security were bombed. In the attack last night, missiles hit the homes of the attorney general and the director of Homeland Security, killing both, along with their families. In addition, the J. Edgar Hoover building was hit, and Quantico, along with at least five or six regional FBI headquarters. You're telling me that's a coincidence? Brad let the question hang in the stale air of the bunker for a few seconds before he continued. I think it goes without saying somebody out there doesn't like the FBI much. Or Homeland. The regional Harrington Banking Center in Ohio turning into a fireball. The tech guy, Johnny Tyler, being strung up on a fire escape ladder. The January 6th judges and prosecutors. Jackie Parisi lynched in her own house. All the targets last night. When you look at it all together, the half of this country that bought into Trump's conspiracy crap has had an awful lot to cheer about the past week. A hush fell over the bunker. The bright light of understanding had finally dawned. Holy shit, Russ said, rubbing his eyes again, more vigorously this time. Carl rubbed his head without realizing it. You're telling me we took out Donald Trump and suddenly his army of ragtag hillbilly domestic terrorists have declared war on the United States of America? He asked. Brad answered. I'm telling you that whoever has declared war on the United States, 
They've only declared war on half of it. Our half. Another hush. More understanding. Then the president began to speak on the screen, and everyone in the bunker turned to listen. After the excitement of the cruise missile launches and the strikes finally died down in the Group Alamo headquarters by around 2 a.m., Eli had one of the guys show Jake to what would be his quarters for the length of his stay in the UP with Group Alamo. Jake had assumed the living quarters would be underground, inside the vast complex, of which he'd seen only a small part. But he was wrong. Staff Sergeant Wilson escorted Jake out of the command center and led him through the maze of hallways to a multi-level parking garage. The staff sergeant directed Jake to an enclosed side-by-side ATV, and together they drove out of the garage and up a long ramp which ended at ground level inside a building that looked like a large barn. Staff Sergeant Wilson pressed a button on a garage door opener attached to the ATV's dash and the large garage door in front of them opened up to the brisk night air of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. The headlights on the side-by-side lit up the darkness, which Jake saw as they left the building was very dark indeed. A million stars shone down bright in a clear, cold sky. The moon was a thin silver crescent, keeping watch on the lakes and forests below. The breeze blew in off the cold water, and later... When they had reached the cabin and the ATV's engine was off, he heard the sound of waves on Lake Michigan in the distance, mixed with the rustle of colored leaves ready to fall. His quarters were a cabin nestled into the woods with a covered front porch just wide enough for a rocking chair and a small table. Someone had left the lights on for him. Like Motel 6, he said to the staff sergeant. Yes, sir, the staff sergeant nodded. We do our best. Are there a lot of cabins on the, what what would you call this, a base? Jake asked. Base works just fine, sir. Group Alamo's base of operations. And yes, most of the lodging consists of small cabins tucked into the surrounding miles of forest. Narrow rustic trails run through the base. Most of the cabins are hidden enough so the footprint, even from the sky, blends in well enough with the surrounding area as to be unremarkable. Jake looked at Staff Sergeant Wilson in the darkness, appraising the young man. The Staff Sergeant was probably in his late 20s, maybe early 30s, pushing six foot tall. He had the athletic body frame typical to most young soldiers prior to the lowering standards of the woke era. He opened the front door for Jake, then followed him into the cabin. The cabin had a cozy feel, with pleasant furnishings and long, narrow windows, a small, fully equipped kitchen, bathroom, and one bedroom with a queen bed, nightstand with lamp, and a simple dresser against the wall with a mirror above it. The floors were maple, and the doors and wall paneling knotty pine. The living room consisted of a comfortable couch, leather club chair, couple side tables, and a wooden desk in one corner with a lamp and a cushioned desk chair. The kitchen was stocked. Even the shelves and refrigerator were ready with various snacks, food, and beverages, both adult and otherwise. Everything about the place felt relaxing. What shocked Jake most 
were his own things he found tucked around the cabin. His laptop and recording equipment on the desk, some of his own books on the end tables, even his own clothes hanging in the closet and folded into the dresser drawers. He turned to look at Staff Sergeant Wilson with wide, suspicious eyes. Where did all my stuff come from? he asked. Scratch that. I know where it came from. But how in the hell did it end up here? Did someone break into my home? The Staff Sergeant replied, Group Commander Crane wanted you to be as comfortable as possible. Given the nature of your meeting and departure, he sent someone to gather a few of your things and bring them up here for you. Jake just shook his head and turned back for the kitchen. So that's a yes. I'm glad Eli was so concerned for my comfort that he broke into my home to collect some of my things for me after he abducted me off the top of a hill in a helicopter. He's all heart. Staff Sergeant Wilson allowed himself a small smile while Jake rummaged through the kitchen cabinets and came out with a bottle of Blanton's bourbon whiskey. At least someone has good taste in bourbon, he said, rummaging again for glasses. Being new to this whole secret paramilitary thing, I don't know all the rules. Are you allowed to enjoy a drink with me this fine night, Staff Sergeant Wilson? Connor Wilson nodded at Jake. We're not as formal as your typical military unit. I'm Connor, and I'd be happy to share a glass of bourbon with you after tonight. Jake handed his new friend Connor a rocks glass with Blanton's neat. Are we celebrating, I suppose? Connor took a sip and thought for a second. I wouldn't say celebrating, he mused. It's mixed up because we all love America, and no one wanted war. But it does feel celebration worthy to see the deep state get punched in the mouth finally, and to be part of the group doing the punching. Jake took a sip of bourbon and considered Staff Sergeant Connor Wilson's articulated perspective. It made a sad kind of sense. For his part, Jake's emotions were all over the map, and he trusted none of them. Twenty-four hours ago, he was sleeping in his own bed, blissfully unaware and disengaged in retrospect. Now, his apartment had been raided, and he had been relocated and was now somehow complicit in the largest attack on U.S. soil in 150 years. His life had become a hurricane of insanity, and he would have to sort through it all in the coming days. But not tonight. Tonight he would drink and sleep in this quaint cabin in the woods in which he suddenly found himself. And he would deal with the end of the world tomorrow. So, how did you find your way to Group Alamo, Connor Wilson? Jake asked after another drink. I assume this isn't a normal career path in the military. Connor smiled. No, not the typical path. I was on the normal path until I made a connection I wasn't supposed to make. I was responsible for a bay of loading docks. I supervised the loading and unloading of trucks and kept the inventory of what came in and out, all the logistics for that particular wing. I began noticing smaller loads coming up missing. I began pulling that string, and when I started hitting roadblocks farther up the chain of command, hinted at warnings. I kept on pulling. Maybe I'm overly curious, or just plain hard-headed. Either way, I kept pulling the string. Staff Sergeant Wilson took another drink, 
and then stared at the liquor in the bottom of his glass for almost a minute before he resumed his story. The string eventually led to a narcotics ring organized by a secret cabal of senior officers. I took the evidence to my commanding officer, and within a week I found myself facing court-martial for possession and distribution of illegal drugs. Then my wife and three-year-old daughter decided to take my truck to the drugstore on base because her car was acting up. I felt the explosion on the back patio, and by the time I got out the front door to see what was left of my truck engulfed in orange flames, they were gone. Jake sat in stunned silence. Connor Wilson took a deep breath, finished the last of his bourbon, and then his story. That was my first introduction to the deep state. They tried to kill me. They destroyed me instead. Two weeks later, Eli Crane showed up on my doorstep. I had fallen asleep with my pistol in my hand the night before on the couch in the living room. It wasn't my first time in that two weeks. I was working my way up to killing myself, drinking more and more every night. I would have gotten up the courage within another week or two if Group Commander Crane hadn't shown up when he did. Connors looked up from his glass to Jake. There were tears in his eyes. Eli Crane saved my life and gave me a purpose in life again. That's how I came to be here. Jake picked up the bottle of Blanton's and poured Staff Sergeant Wilson and himself another glass. He picked up his drink and leaned back into the couch. It's personal for you. Connor Wilson nodded. It's personal for me. Jake raised his glass to Staff Sergeant Connor Wilson. Then tonight, it's a celebration. Connor Wilson smiled, but it was thin and cold. He toasted Jake. A celebration, he said. May every last one of them rot in hell. Together, they drank to violent death and destruction, and the whiskey went down warm and smooth. By the time the new president addressed the nation the next afternoon, Jake found himself watching in his cabin alone, only for research purposes. If a press conference was on in the command center, the volume was low and no one paid much attention. Nothing she said mattered, only what the government did, or attempted to do. They understood they had struck the hornet's nest, and the hornets were pissed. Group Alamo wasn't much interested in all the sound and fury of the buzzing. They were busy preparing for their next punch. <laughs>